so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! In the words of Beyonce, baby, you can see my halo. Welcome to Motorsport 101. Welcome to episode 29 of Motorsport 101, everybody. I am your friendly neighbourhood host, Mr. Andre Harrison. Of course, joining me as ever on Motorsport 101, we have, from America, Mr. Ryan King. Hold up. Give me a second. I gotta, like, pull my plug on my political endorsement of ex-presidential candidate. <laughs> <laughs> the satire is real. Hey, hey, hey. We, we gotta... Hey, we, we, like, it's just, just, just worth mentioning, other presidential nominees are available. Now... <laughs> On top of that, of course, on my other side, representing Dartford, the NASCAR community, and buying a ridiculous amount of wrestling action figures, it's Mr. Adam Johnson. Hello, sir. Sorry, not sorry. Hello, folks. <laughs> he is our resident producer, and we can all blame him for not getting an early access edition of the podcast this week. Because... Correction, you should blame Skype. Uh, no, it was all you. Now, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, definitely Skype. Uh, yeah. <laughs> fine, fine. We'll blame Skype and have everybody tell me, you should go on TeamSpeak instead. Uh... TeamSpeak, Lil. Oh dear, but um, yeah, okay. Quick bit of news before we before we go on. First of all, we're deeply sorry for the last two weeks we've not had an early edition of the show out. It's been sorry. a a cavalcade of um, quite a copia, so so to speak, of technical problems. But hopefully, we'll get them ironed out from here on in going forward, and that's probably for the best because. I can also happily announce we are going weekly from here on in. So this oh, is the last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking Al Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the last time you've got to wait two weeks before you get a new edition of the show. From here on in, we will be out every Friday at 5 p.m. GMT. Um, so you can look forward to that. We're, hopefully that'll be all the way through till Christmas. Maybe even more, depending on what comes in, what's news and whatnot. Obviously, this is subject to change, but. I'm going to preemptively predict we'll probably be going weekly from here on in for the rest of the year. So, you know, yay for that Excellent. kind of thing. So hopefully it'll be more of us. And now, just so, just so you know, we are aware there has been other news going on in the IndyCar world this time around, but we are saving that discussion for the next episode because a little bit of a behind-the-scenes note for you. We record these episodes on the Monday they're meant to go out normally. Now... As a result of the technical problems, many things have changed in, 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 in that. And our backup day for recording is Thursday, is the day of recording this. This is the day before you're actually probably listening to it, more unlikely. So we've had to do a little bit of uh, moving around, rearranging and whatnot. But we're saving the next episode, episode 30, for our great big IndyCar season preview. So, uh, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, tune into next week's episode. In case anything dramatic happens in between, we'll, 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 throw, we'll chuck in that episode as well. Danny but, Brennan, yeah. hello. This is your episode. Yeah, it, it, we call it the Danny Brennan special right here. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's just a bit of news to get out of the way. On this edition of the podcast itself we'll be talking at the top of the bill it's actually slowly moved up the, the order over the last three days like the stock market going on right now the new f1 halo made its debut um right today uh they recording today at uh at catalonia and obviously it's got everybody talking um from many many extreme angles we'll be talking about is the halo a good thing should do we actually like it now we've actually seen it seen it in person the pros the cons 
and it seems that the drivers are not fully on board with the idea. Nico Rosberg was very glowing in his endorsements on Twitter uh, today, while others like Nico Hockenberg have fully trashed the idea. We'll see where we all stand on that as the world slowly goes into meltdown over this discussion <laughs> tonight. Also, we'll be talking about the Daytona 500 because I let King and Johnson hijack the podcast, at least. Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> now, now look what you've gone and done. Okay, so we're talking about Denny Hamlin winning the closest Daytona 500 finish ever, as well as we're talking politics on the podcast. For oh, no, sake. no, no, please. <laughs> Brian France, why'd you have to do it? No. <laughs> I tried to create this show to avoid political discussions. Then again, I'm an F1 fan, so what the hell was Yeah, I exactly. That's never going to work. <laughs> I think I was speaking more out of hope than expectation. But yeah, so we're talking about Brian France endorsing Donald Trump's political campaign and the cons that come with that too. We'll be talking about the F1 qualifying system, how the fact it's been changed, then delayed, then changed again, then underlaid again. I'd like to call this one great big F1 decision-making clusterfuck. Yeah. Yay. This is F1 <laughs> making a decision, folks. Yes, it, it never quite goes fully to plan, does it? Uh, in this case, where it take four, and we could easily see more between now and Melbourne, which, by the way, is two weeks away! Hype! <laughs> um, yay. But um, we're obviously talking about the great big Manor WEC family reunion as Will Stevens and James Jakes are announced as WEC drivers for the Manor team. And we'll be talking about some of the underrated stories you may have missed from F1 testing, such as Lewis Hamilton admitting he tanked the last three rounds of the, of the 20, 2015 season, and Carlos Sainz bringing forward the weight-cutting discussion in Formula 1 after he's often had to announce he was starving himself to make the car on many other occasions. And I think that's another discussion that's very underappreciated. I think that's definitely worth having all that and inevitable nascar sidetracks on this edition of motorsport 101 but let's talk about the big one today was the first unveiling of the first, first prototype you could say of the new halo feature designed and brought in to try and make f1 safer from a cockpit protection standpoint it debuted on Kimi Raikkonen's Ferrari. He did a couple of laps with it, brought it back in. Um, Ferrari very generously gave it to the media room afterwards for them to have a to have a good to have a good uh, look at, like something out of a auction TV show. It's like I was watching Storage Wars for a minute, but uh, <laughs> but uh, having a good look at it. And um, many many sizzling hot takes have been made since uh, you know since since this has been happening. And um, wow, uh, King, where do you even start with something like this? Because um, this is a game changer or a potential game changer because this is what the FIA is, is, is pushing very hard for 2017 and we've now actually seen it in person for the first time. So, uh, King, where's your feelings on this? Uh, it's, well, first I have to say, Kimi Raikkonen only did one lap, in and out, that yep. was it. My bad. <laughs> and uh, it's, they're not settled on what design will actually be the design for next year. Very All the teams are allowed to to bring in a design that they feel like they want to be the standard for next year. Like that's Ferrari's design that they, you know, just trial this year for it was just a visibility check. And I know Red Bull said they want to test their own Batmobile style version in the next month, which will mm -hmm. basically have two forward supports and like uh, a transparent acrylic centerpiece. Right. So, this, this design is not finalized. It's just Ferrari's first idea of what they want it to be. Again, it's like, it's, it's fair to say at this point, it's still kind of a proof of concept more than anything else. And 
Like, if, if, this, if this was a business plan, this would be, like, the very first draft, more unlikely. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a first draft. Like, all the teams that have been working with the FIA over right, the past right. couple of years to get a design. This is the first one that's been on a car that's been in public view. Okay, um... So yeah, it's the first time we've, we've seen it in action. So of course, once because before then we'd only ever seen it in drawings, mm. and people had taken their opinions from that. This is the first time we actually saw it on a car in person. Um, many as much has been made. I mean, some people posted the camera, like, like the onboard camera shots of it, and which is just completely wrong because the camera points on top of a helmet, so it's it's not. A, a natural driver's eye line by any stretch. I know people have posted, like even Jenny Galf, and I'm like, oh come on, Jen. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's like people, people have fallen into that trap. That's not a driver's natural eyesight unless you're a giraffe, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, so that's that's never going to work. But at the same time, here's my opinion on the whole thing. For me, I. Well, we, we talked about this on, on, on the last episode, and we talked about how it felt more like a stopgap than a true solution. But the more I think about it, the more I feel like there is no perfect solution to this, and every potential solution will have drawbacks as a natural consequence of you know a, a fundamental change in how open-wheel cars are made or designed. It's, it's one of those things that's always going to be very, very complicated, and... For me, while it's only a first prototype, really, for what we can see on track, and again, this this design will obviously evolve over time. Things will change and and whatnot. I mean, Johnson, what's your early impressions? Because well, I, I'm, I'm I'm not so sure on this myself. Well, to be honest with you, I mean, first up, this uh, topic. Uh, in relation to the podcast on the running order, it's almost like Daniel Bryan pre-WrestleMania 30. It was nowhere near the main event, but he has slowly been moving up and moving up as mm. more and more people have made noise about it. So yes. we're tackling it first up, and we feel we have to. Yes. Um, <clears throat> for me, at 9am this morning, when I rolled out of bed and saw this on Twitter, I hated it. My first reaction, hated it. Did not like it at all. It looked stupid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... I. I've got to say, I've kind of warmed to it during the day, and here's my reasons for it. I mean, number one, the I see a lot of people going, well, this is not the solution. Uh, canopies are. King will explain very succinctly. He knows the ins and outs of this, mm -hmm. but basically canopies are still full jet fighter-style canopies in Formula 1 got to be at least 10 years away, right? They, there is a lot yes. of issues with canopies, chief among which, I didn't think of this at first, Heating in the car, or overheating, I should say, yeah, um, because there's no room for venting or air conditioning like in a prototype or other closed cockpit cars, and uh, vision because of the, the shape of the canopy. Um, so there's two, also getting out in an accident. So even that solution, which is being held up as the be-all and end-all, even when it does drop, which is nowhere close, it's not going to solve everything. So this is one of those real... The, the biggest issue they faced with this whole um, driver cockpit protection thing is that nothing is going to fix everything. I mean, let's clarify one thing. It's not particularly pleasant to say it, but no, no cockpit protection would have saved Jules Bianchi. No. So if we're using that as the precedence, it's from a flawed starting point because not much would have saved him in terms of that. I'm thinking that this current pressure or uh, motivation to get cockpit protection into Formula 1 spans more from Justin Wilson's tragedy, where he Great. was struck by a large part of um, the, the nose cone yeah. of, a, of a, uh, another car. 
And for me, this deals more with incidents like that, incidents like the tragedy with uh, Henry Surtees, who was struck by a flying tyre. Yes. And for me, the great success of this Halo design will be defined if it's strong enough to withstand impacts from tyres, which are very, very heavy things, then I think it actually comes together as quite an elegant solution that technically doesn't take away the open cockpitness. I mean, this was pointed out by, um, I think it was Sam Collins at Race Car Engineering. Um, if you look at the design of Formula One cars, the cockpits have become more and more enclosed over time anyway. Like That's you look true. currently, the sides of the cockpit reach up almost to the top of the driver's head. It's the front part for visibility reasons that are more open. Mm -hmm. So it's been more of a natural progression, but of course, this is a major step, isn't it? I mean, Max Chilton earlier had a great comment on it. He said, you know what? We probably had people reacting ne negatively the first time people turned up with helmets at a racetrack rather than, you know, flying goggles and, you know, the basically pilot World War II pilot flying gear as their protective headgear for a race. The f oh, you've turned up with a helmet? You wuss. What the hell? What is this? What is this outrage? So, I, I, I don't know. I definitely, yeah, sorry, I don't, okay. Well, I mean, I would say that's partially not true because the FIA made helmets mandatory in 1947. Mm -hmm. I should just never go near Formula One pre 1985. <laughs> oh, I think. <laughs> King, King is our official like political fact checker when it comes to F1 at half the time, anyway. But it's. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna address something on Skype that I've just been sent, and I know many people have asked me like, is Cracker ever coming back on the podcast? Yeah, this is the compromise. He has sent me a message talking about how he doesn't like the Halo, and King, I want your perspective on this. He said to me, and I quote, "I do not like the Halo device, as it is too indecisive." Now, how can an object such as that be indecisive? Well, the creators of it and those who approve it approve it because they can't decide whether they want to stick to the norm of no closed cockpits or go fully closed cockpit. The Halo device is a compromise which looks dumb mm. and does not increase safety and at the worst decreases it. It reduces vision and still has to be around 40% of the driver's head unprotected, while a fully closed cockpit, given time to be researched, developed and then implemented, would likely increase safety to a much higher level and please practically everyone. A fully closed cockpit is the way to go, but to create such a weird, rushed and flawed compromise to it mm. only makes things worse and damages the image of F1 more as a gimmicky, indecisive, unthinking series of motorsport that refuses to actually evolve and tackle key issues which actually threaten the sport and the livelihood of those that participate in it. Now, it's worth mentioning that Kraken is the most cynical F1 fan I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I thought all F1 fans were cynical to a degree, so that's saying a lot. Yeah, but Kraken is super cynical about these things. <laughs> but um, thanks for the comments, Gina, by the way. Much appreciated. Um, but at the same time... I'm not willing to call it indecisive because the FIA has been working on things like this for over five years. This is mm. not... Again, this I think is... it feels to the public like it's indecisive because it's this momentum has come out of nowhere. It's like Indeed. January started and all of a sudden, oh my God, copy protection for 2017. Everyone's on board with it, although we've since found out that they're not. Exactly. So I think so... from a public perspective, it looks like it's come out of nowhere as a rush job. Yeah, but, that's that's very fair. But yeah. again, as King pointed out last year on the podcast, the FIA has been looking at solutions to this since 2011. So it's, this is not a new thing. This is not like I think yeah. I think Johnson's very much right. I think to the to the eyes of the unassuming public who don't know what goes on behind the scenes a lot of the time, or you know, maybe the semi-casual viewer, they probably don't know the fact that they've been looking at solutions for a long time. Um, again, I think it's fair to say that there is no be-all and end-all. No, and I think if there is a canopy solution of some kind. I feel like 
again, like like we mentioned, it's I think it's about 10, 15 years away. It's uh, it's not it's not realistic to have that conversation yet, quite frankly, because even if we did universally approve it, which, which I reckon a lot of people wouldn't be if it actually got put forward, because we mentioned before, canopies have problems too, like re- like removal for escape of a car that might be upside down or on fire. Again, you know, finding efficient ways to remove said canopy is a problem. Insulation, car redesigns, etc. In fact, in fact, I'd argue, yeah, I'd argue, yeah. there's, I'd argue, there's more cons with a canopy right now than this Halo system is. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's my thought. Like right now, right now, before like I head myself off into a rant, like being <laughs> just just going slow, calculating, running through the things that is wrong with a closed cockpit at the moment. One, because the cockpit is so narrow, you get the weird image distortion like i was talking about oh, before yeah, that's, that's where it, it would be comparative if you fill a glass up with water and try to look through it and usually jet fighters don't have to worry about that because usually in like aerial combat you're worried about things that are kilometers away not meters away mm. and then you get into other things such as i said air conditioning where i said where it's basically the the cars need to be um, the cars need to have an air conditioning unit on board, and F1 already has weight problems at the moment. Yeah, and that doesn't help it at all. Mm-hmm. And we also need. I'm sorry, who's trying? Who's so- trying to interject at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll oh, hear from God. you in a minute, member of the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> the phone's going off in the background at it, the it, most. It, it was Kraken trying to throw in, <laughs> <laughs> and so. I mean, and three, F1 needs to come up with a solution that's not only just for F1, but for lower categories, as that's in, like, true. the incident that probably got this whole ball rolling was Henry Surti's incident, which was not in Formula 1. It was in Formula 2, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it was a completely spec series designed to be as low cost as possible. Mm. Exactly. And, for you, example... You, sorry, sorry, Dre. Um, remember, you got to remember... Given this, how the super license talks were happening around this time last year, the FIA clearly are trying to create their own uniform ladder system yeah. to get into Formula One, and you know they're trying to bypass Formula Renault 3.5. So you're absolutely right in that regard. If it's 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 not just an F1 problem, it is a open wheeled motorsport in Europe problem across the board right now. I'd argue if, in America as well. I mean, IndyCar yeah, America, is looking yeah, at yeah. solutions like this, and mm. I I can't remember who it was. I want to say it might have been Graham Rahal earlier. Um, because Michael Shank, the head of uh, one of the IMSA sports car teams, uh, Michael Shank Racing, tweeted about the Halo design saying, oh, I'd love to see this in IndyCar one day. And as I say, I think it was Ray Hall. Um, I will correct myself if I find out different. Immediately shot it down saying, well, look at the visibility. It mostly restricts visibility to the upwards, uh, forwards to the left and right, upwards. Well, think about it. When you're on ovals, you are yeah, looking up and to the left when you're on the banking. So it's a non-starter for oval racing um, uh, in IndyCar. So even then, it, it it has to work in a lot of different applications. It's very difficult, this. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, in the past, motorsport has been lucky to get a silver bullet solution to a problem mm. that was only available in motorsport, where, where motorsport definitely had a problem with uh, basal or skull fractures, which yes. is like... A traumatic head injury, which it accounts for only 4% of all traumatic brain injuries. And yet it probably, you know, was 
the cause of death in, you know, some of the most high-profile motorsport deaths in history. Cause mm. the death of Roland Rastenberger, mm-hmm. cause the death of Greg Moore in IndyCar, Dale Earnhardt in NASCAR. It, it just... It just seems like when you come up, the solution that they came up with was the Hans device, which is, you know, affordable and almost every driver that you see nowadays that races yeah. professionally has one. Of course. It's gone from what is this bit of kit to you don't race without it. Exactly. It's, 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 and it's arguably the greatest innovation in F1 history. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't, we can't count all the lives that have been saved, but there's been noted that three probably major deaths has have been avoided because of the Hansa vice number one jeff gordon would have died at the 2006 pocono 500 if he didn't have a Hansa vice mm-hmm. the year later robin kubica would have died at the 2007 canadian grand prix oh, if he didn't have a Hansa device and just last year max verstappen would have died at the 2005 monaco grand prix if he didn't have a Hansa device 2005, if it was even alive back then. <laughs> I mean, two, 2015. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we've been very, very fortunate to have such an incredible device save probably countless lives mm. in motorsport with the hands device. And I know something else I want to address in this discussion as well is that a lot of fans on, on, on you know things like F1 subreddit and people on Twitter, like the hardcore racing guys are just saying, well, don't bother because you know racing is always going to be inherently dangerous and i'm like shut up i i'm going to go on for one for just a second here but i hate people that think like this i hate people that just say racing's dangerous suck it up let's not change anything unless you're a driver you can't really say that to be honest with you uh uh, because let me me, uh, my my dander is up too high on this (laughs) go on it's all yours let let, let me vent on this one (laughs) seriously i fucking hate people like this because it it, it gets on my nerves look i get it formula one is dangerous no one is refuting that for a second we've Mm. been very fortunate in f1 to have gone 20 was it 21 years without a fatality and of course, tragedy tragedy happens across the board, and it will happen. There's no, there's no getting around it. Freak accidents will happen. Mm. That, that's how life tends to be. That doesn't mean we should ever stop having a conversation about safety and ways we can make the sport safer. Because half the people that are complaining about racing being dangerous were people that were grieving when Jules Bianchi died last year. Absolutely. I'm not, not going to sit here with this level of hypocrisy and tell people, oh, racing's dangerous, suck it up. That's not the attitude we should have. Mm. We, we, we as, as a society are meant to be progressive. That, like, I don't care what year it is. Uh, we should never stop answering that question. Safety should be the number one priority of this sport because of the fact of how dangerous it is. Yeah. Because we saw Jules Bianchi die. Because we've had many accidents that in for many people in the motorsport world have, have deeply affected them. It's something nobody wants to see. Nobody wants to see happen. I'm sorry. I, I know this halo. I said it on Twitter today. This... I'm not saying this Halo is this perfect solution to these problems. Far no, from I don't think it. anyone is. And I don't think anybody is. What I'm saying is we shouldn't... I, I, one thing I'm against is people that don't want to have the conversation. No. That is the people that piss me off about this because ultimately, sure, people will hurt. Maybe somebody will die every once in a while. And that's... Mm. I don't want to trivialize something like that because it is obviously horrific and tragic in every way. 
but shouldn't that be reason enough to never stop the conversation about safety like we can always find a way to make things safer now i'm sure guys like nico hulkenberg who came out today saying it was a horrible idea and there needs to be an element of danger why why does it need to be an element of danger now i know that f1 fans love the speed of f1 and i know a lot of them love the almost masochistic nature of speed and danger and the thrill behind it but i i just i just like where do you draw the line like if, if, if it was someone like lewis hamilton in jules position we'd be having much more active conversations about something like this I think because the grieving would be strong. I mean, the <clears throat> the thing is, Nico Hulkenberg's comments remind me a lot of uh, some comments Sebastian Bourdais made uh, before the Indy 500 last year, where they'd suffered three pretty major crashes in the practice sessions leading up to the race, including mm. uh, James Hinchcliffe becoming worryingly close to... It was uh, minutes from dying. Exactly, yeah, when he, he had a huge accident. And he put it beautifully he put it so succinctly <clears throat> in a way that sort of balanced it he kind of he said to the journalist he said when did you guys stop assuming that this was totally safe you it never will be but we have already like effectively uh what he was trying to say was people you know race drivers will always have to have that conversation with themselves knowing that there is potential for them to be hurt or die doing this job and if they can accept that then they're a racing driver but for me, uh, the thing is, cars progress and they're much faster now. They're much, um, th- you know, technology moves forward. And safety standards of previous eras just won't cut it. I mean, there is a reason we don't race, you know, people don't use flying goggles anymore. They use helmets and Hans devices, you know, things like that. There's, there's always going to be ways to move forward. There's always going to be risks involved in motorsport. There is, let's put it this way. No matter how, in inverted commas, safe a car might be, there is always going to be a situation or always going to be a circumstance where suddenly it isn't... We've already discussed it. It's never going to be enough. There's always going to be those moments of incredible danger because, let's be honest, let's break down what we're doing here. These guys are going 200 miles an hour, wheel to wheel with each other around... I don't know how wide the average bit of Formula 1 track would be, but you're putting all these cars, all these incredibly fast cars, in an incredibly small, relatively speaking, space and asking them to do battle. It's like I always say about NASCAR, the Romans would have loved NASCAR because it's like battles at the Colosseum. It's human chariot racing. Exactly, exactly. So you're right in that there is always going to be danger. And for many race drivers, it's that exhilaration that will do it. But at the same time, it's, uh, I think there's a general agreement that okay that's too far if if that could be avoided then that's probably a good thing but there are some accidents where you have to go that that was unavoidable it it just happens but i don't think this conversation is one of them i don't <clears throat> i don't think this is one of those tradition kind of things i i just and even so we should still be able to have conversations like growing adults about things like absolutely this. absolutely like i said I'm not saying this is a great idea. I'm not saying this is this no. is the perfect answer. All I'm saying is, is why can't we talk about safety? If like, your why? response is, oh, it's elf and safety gone mad, that's that's not an answer, that, really. That is an opinion of the Stone Age, and I don't want to talk about Formula One with you if that's your mentality. The year's mm. 2016, yeah, like, get a fucking grip, <sighs> quite yeah, frankly. No, no one should be in the camp where it's health and safety gone mad, and no one should be in the camp where safety is the end-all, be-all. No. 
Absolutely. I think F1's been trying to balance its its own battle between technological advancement and entertainment for about 40 years now. There's Absolutely. no reason why Tommy do the same with safety. I think the, 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 the biggest issue overall with this is that we're all still pretty raw. You know, the Justin Wilson tragedy was, what, last August? And yeah. Jules Bianchi passed away not long before that. So before, we're all very... Exactly, yeah. We're all very raw about this. So this is a conversation that is so hard to have balanced and cold. In, but indeed. that's exactly what you need to be. You can't be emotional about this because you either get, as you said, King, you either get the who cares, safety has to be the most important thing ever, at which point you threaten to lose the very thing that makes motor racing what it is ultimately, or you get the traditionalists, uh, let's not do anything at all argument because my traditions and neither one's acceptable. Neither one is productive and neither one is going to push this debate forward to a solution that actually works. Exactly, and it, it, it doesn't help when Motorsport are going after people like Jules Bianchi's father, who then that story oh, came out of Motorsport.com literally about five minutes before we started recording this show, talking about how Jules Bianchi's father wasn't convinced by the Halo design when... I don't know if, if, if Philippe Bianchi even knows this, but his accident was just unavoidable. Like, he was going to die no matter what was in front of his cockpit. When well, me and King were talking before the show started that even, <clears throat> excuse me, there are many closed cockpit race cars he could have been in where he likely still would have died. Exactly. And and, and it's it's one of those things where we shouldn't be asking a grieving father his opinion on, on, on cockpits. The man, the man lost his son in a tragic accident. And, I mean, it's... It's one of those things where people putting their emotions into this is not going to help the situation either because I get it. Sport is emotional. Sport brings people together in ways that, you know, not very many other things on this planet can. And it, it just doesn't help either, quite frankly. And it's, it's, it's such a volatile and delicate issue because people are so passionate about motorsport and Formula One. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the kind of thing where you've got to kind of put that to one side and use your brain more than anything else and i just i can I, I before we move on from this section i just want to try and just stress formula one has always been a sport that's been where it is today because of balance mm. it, it, on so many levels balance between the ever-growing advancements in technology and often the the die-hard masochistic nature of an audience that wants entertainment at any means necessary and of course finding ways to make the show better and even hate using that term i use it in like with like verbal inverted commas because <laughs> yeah. because all sports is designed to be entertaining on some level um so it's it's always been a sport of balance and balance is what makes the world go round yeah and going all in one way or the other doesn't help anybody as johnson quite rightly said and quite frankly um the best way of going about this to me is just having an open mind and winning and be willing to have the conversation. That's, that's how it is to me. Cause when, when, when I see people like, Oh, you know, justifying things like gravel traps still and, and talking about how, you know, Oh, it's racing. There should be an element of danger. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Seriously. Oh, and, like, and, 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 you, and you see, and you see that discussion take place and I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Like, why do you, why do you have such a closed mentality when it comes to this? And As I say, the only people allowed to say that are the drivers themselves. And that's because, the, you know, if uh, even then, you know, they're not, 
I think what's most fascinating about all this is that when this momentum started in January, we had the GPDA saying that the drivers were unanimous about this in Formula One, and Hulkenberg's comments prove they're really not. They're not. And it's it's it. if even the drivers are split about this, you know it's a hot topic because, as I said, you know guys like Sebastian Bourdais and a lot of race drivers understand that there's a lot safer and easier ways to make a living. They chose to do this and they accept that. However, on the other hand. There are some risks that are unnecessary and too far. And it's it's almost a personal decision. You know, like AJ yes. Allmendinger has decided he will not drive in open wheel racing again uh, unless there's cockpit protection. But that's because he was such a close friend of Justin Wilson. And that's entirely a personal decision of his. And I respect it. So it's going to be completely different. Him. So if even the drivers, who are probably the best qualified of all to talk about this, if even they're split on this, what chance have we got? Yeah, like, I think we need to remember here that these drivers are people's, you know, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, but, yeah, husbands, wives, but especially in this situation, they're they're people's employees. Absolutely. And they're sponsor, uh, what's the word, sponsor ambassadors, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's... Again, there's never going to be the perfect answer to this, but like I've always, like I've said for the last 15 minutes, anyone that I think is looking at this with a closed mind, I think has the wrong way of going about it. And Absolutely. It, it, it's, I think it's very easy, given the status of Formula One right now, to be cynical and negative regarding it. And I totally understand that to a degree because there is not an awful lot to like about Formula One in this direction at the moment. And I, I very much agree with, with, with what King said on Twitter a couple of days ago and what Martin Brundle said. That I think Formula One absolutely needs a master plan as opposed to a, a, a selection of, 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 of stop-starty kind of decisions. Quick to try fixes. And, you know, quick fixes to paper over cracks and things like that. But please, if you're one of those people out there that are strongly in one camp, please listen to the other one. Have a civilized debate. I was actually very happy on my Twitter page this afternoon that there was a lot of many there was many different fans from many different spectrums and angles in my mentions having a discussion about it no yeah. no no effing no blinding no swearing just a mature civilized discussion about incidents the relations back to Bianchi and things like that and that's one of the most genuinely positive experiences I've seen on F1's Twitter in quite a yeah. long time because it showed that it can be done more yeah. than anything else and if we can do it as fans there's no reason why elements of people in formula one can do the same then again maybe i'm being far too optimistic so <laughs> we can hope we can only one can only hope that uh, a, a, a mature and hopefully the, the i use the term in inverted commas the right solution is found Moving on um, swiftly and to the, the, the Daytona 500 now as it's become quite obvious i am not the biggest nascar viewer in the world far from it <laughs> um but i'm going to let johnson as kind of like a preview to his upcoming podcast on team bomber sports very soon i'm going to let him share this one with king talking about daytona and uh just let me know when you guys are finished we'll talk we'll talk we'll talk some politics afterwards because that's always fun right <laughs> oh joy <laughs> right well but, um, as dre goes off to make himself a cup of tea yeah, sure. and maybe go get some more pop vinyl figures Yay. let's talk daytona let's do that we are actually being given a platform to talk nascar on this podcast and i'm going to grab it with both hands mainly because the race we're talking about the daytona 500 was superb it was a, a fabulous race overall and quite honestly to start this one off king before we get into the nitty-gritty of the race 
I'd say this was the race that NASCAR needed after some of the shenanigans and the controversy at the end of last year with, you know, the chase format, rules packages, who knew what was going to happen, the Kenseth versus Logano storm, that was all going off. <laughs> I would argue that this was the race that NASCAR kind of needed. Yeah, I'd definitely say that, like, 10 years from now, when we're all looking back on this, you know, period of NASCAR, we're probably not going to remember all the little, you know, complaints we had and all the stories, but we're definitely going to remember this Daytona 500. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was a, a fabulous race, and it was one that felt, and I, I think, honestly, it's no coincidence that this came around in a year that we're also running, uh, or NASCAR is also running a lower downforce package that is much more in keeping with the rules packages from the mid-2000s. You know, we're effectively stepping back in time in that. This felt kind of like an old school Daytona 500. There was no big one. There was uh, not one huge pack for the entire race. There was actually a lot of clean and green running. Uh, there were some single car wrecks. The cars were very difficult to drive. If even Dale Earnhardt Jr., one of the very finest restrictor plate drivers in NASCAR, if even he spins out on his own and wrecks out of the 500, <laughs> you know things are tricky out there. Yeah, it was it was all wheel to wheel, maneuvering, finding your finding your good fuel strategy to hope that you're in the right position near the end. And I'd say only a handful of guys actually got themselves in that position to to win the race. And it was actually exciting to see everything play out and develop. It may not have been, you know, the uh, you know the crash and bash plate races we're used to, but man, it was a show. To be honest with you, I enjoyed that more. Uh, and I think <clears throat> recently, uh, especially after how the second Talladega race of last year ended in total fiasco, um, it was nice to see a race end under green and see a lack of wrecks like that. This was, so far, NASCAR 2016, because we're also recording this after the second round at Atlanta, which was also really entertaining for very similar reasons. Um, it feels to me like this is kind of in the NASCAR of old. This is the old school. And... It's quite interesting in that respect because this is a NASCAR that has quite often courted the, I hate the term, casual fan. Um, <laughs> you know, the classic definition which interprets people with the attention span of 15 seconds who probably Demolition aren't Derby. race fans anyway. Demolition Derby. Demolition yeah. Derby. Exactly, yeah. Th those people, which I'd argue aren't fans anyway. Um, so it's been kind of going after those. It's It's taken on some very NFL-style terminology, you know, with the overtime and the playoffs and things yeah. like that. So it's been playing to a mainstream gallery a lot now. And now this year we've had, for the third tier, Truck Series. We've had the, I can barely bring myself to say this, the caution clock, which basically yeah. means that if no caution happens within 20 minutes, they'll just throw one anyway, because who wants to actually see racing going on? We want to see restarts and crashes and blah. And I think on that backdrop, King, it's interesting that, especially now that Atlanta played out very similarly, the Daytona 500 was very... It built, and it built, and it evolved, and it it made it into this epic crescendo at the end that really kind of said that, you know what? You don't need to force it. The entertainment and the action will come if you just sprinkle a little bit you know. of magic on it and let them loose. Yeah, like, it really reminds me of, like, the NASCAR when I was a child. The NASCAR that initially became popular in mainstream in mainstream America in the late 90s when you know in the in the late 90s when Dale Earnhardt Jr. was just a little kid out there <laughs> when Chase Elliott was still sitting on his dad's knee <laughs> oh god way to make us feel old again Johnson <laughs> 
No, well, Chase Elliott is effectively the Max Verstappen of NASCAR anyway. So yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And the race itself, it was, um, as as King said, very interesting in terms of different strategies. Um, car, guys struggling quite badly with the handling on their own. It was a rough, abrasive surface, which we haven't seen at Daytona since at least 2010, which is when it was resurfaced. And since then, it's been so smooth, drivers can literally just go arrow straight most of the time. But this was the first year where we saw varying conditions and we saw varying track strategy and for long parts of the race king this looked like an absolute joe gibbs racing lockout and i think ultimately yeah. in the end we have to give them credit for cutting their f- effectively four drivers loose because you had uh carl edwards denny hamlin matt kenseth in the battle along with furniture row racing driver and joe gibbs affiliate martin truex jr and we have to thank we have to be thankful that NASCAR is not like Formula One. There was no chance of any team orders here. Everyone went for the win. Yeah, I was like, uh, like one thing I have to mention before I go into the whole goal, Joe Gibbs things. I was surprised how weak some of the other teams were. I was surprised how weak, you know, the usual plate contenders, mm. Hendrick Motorsports were. Yeah, they had an off day. Were, 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 you know, Jimmy Johnson was very weak out there. Chase Elliott and Dale Earnhardt Jr. crashed out, and oh, it was just not their day. And Joe Gibbs took advantage of that, where it's basically, in terms of strategy, they had their they had they had their pickings, and in terms of speed, they were unmatched. And the finale definitely proved that. Where Matt Kenseth was in position to win, all he had to do was prevent his teammates from beating him, and he threw. A, probably a Hail Mary of a block <laughs> and Denny Hamlin made the Hail Mary of a move to take advantage of that, that was situation. Unbelievable. It was yeah. an amazing final couple of laps and and as I say, it was so nice that they played out under green. There was no big wreck that forced a, a caution finish and it was so good to see that. It was almost the reverse of last year where they went 20 laps 3 by 3 by 3 in a spectacular visual spectacle and then crashed as soon as the white flag came down and the race ended under yellow. This year it was, it was like single file mostly and everyone was sitting there going is this going to be like 2013 where nothing happens even at the end? But it really, if you believe Denny Hamlin, he was not looking to pass Matt Kenseth on the final lap. I take that with a big pinch of salt, (laughs) given that Denny Hamlin has never won a 500. He claims that he was blocking guys behind Matt Kenseth and Kevin Harvick looking for the move himself. I mean, this is Harvick, man. This is how he won in 2007, probably widely agreed as the greatest Daytona 500 ever. He came from sixth on the final lap to win it in a photo finish with Mark Martin. Um, <clears throat> he was looking to do something similar, booted Denny Hamlin down the back straight, and if you believe Denny Hamlin, he just sat there and went, oh, that's convenient. I just got a massive push. I might as well try and pass my team. Oh, wait, that's exactly what I'm doing. Nah, I don't believe that for a second. Although I think that push was pretty crucial. And then yeah. the the story of the final mile or so of this race is unbelievable in itself. You had Matt Kenseth basically almost wreck the entire field, but not. That you've never seen a car go sideways at 200 miles an hour for that long and not crash. You had Hamlin then battle through. You had Martin Truex Jr. trying to put the RKO out of nowhere, leading with 50 yards and then not. And the closest 500 finish in history, 0.010, <laughs> one-hundredth uh, of a second. Unreal. Everyone was on their feet for that moment. And 
I swear everyone did not believe that Denny won. I think the only person who called it was Jeff Gordon in the booth. He was yeah. the only person to say, yeah, Denny won this. Yeah, I, th I think everyone else thought, because Truex Jr. was leading almost to literally within 20 yards of the line. Truex's nose was in front. And then Hamlin's was. That literally was about <laughs> as close as it was. Had the finish line been 100 yards further towards turn four, Truex would be the 500 winner. Oh, and it's been a long, it's been a while since we've had a finish like that. That's just sort of a race that just, as I say, played out so purely and just evolved into this amazing spectacle in front of our eyes. There was no, uh, oh, we've got to do this because it's an elimination and I'll get eliminated and oh no, there's a green white checker and oh, something else has happened and something or else. It just, as I say, King, I think this just really reminded us why we love NASCAR in the first place. The fact that such a long race. I mean, NASCAR is effectively the longest racing series in the world with one driver per car. You know, there's series around the world that run, don't even run for as long as uh, NASCAR does, and they have co-drivers. So it's effectively endurance racing. Um, and don't, I, don't I think you it dare just go with the endurance saying on that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> very no. careful with that. No, <laughs> we're not hipsters. Don't You're not David worry. Coulthard no. either. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good thing to be honest with you. Um, but it just, King, I just, I really love the fact that this race and then Atlanta a week later, both just sort of played out so naturally and put on such a great show in front of us. It was almost like, you know what? Just stop tinkering. You don't have to tinker anymore. You've got something good. Yeah, it's like, I just want to see it on a short track to see if everything's definite. Oh. And, then I, and then I'll be willing to make final judgment that, yep. yeah. Yeah. It, we, can, we can go like a good five, six years, don't change anything, I'll be fine. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the drivers <laughs> are already clamoring for more downforce taken off because effectively, um, for those of you listening to the podcast, uh, I have to remember this is not my podcast. Um, so basically what NASCAR has realized is what Formula One hasn't. If you want to improve the show and get more side-by-side -side racing, you take away downforce because effectively since 2008, NASCAR race cars have effectively taken on more and more downforce they've grown splitters they've had front wings uh, rear wings for a little while rather than little spoilers they've got lowered to the ground they've had uh, radiator pans things like this all of which has generated more downforce and all of which has affected the racing negatively and now f1 might be able to get away with having super fast cars that can't run within 50 yards of each other because dirty air because spectacular fast whatever but NASCAR, which sells itself on side-by-side -side close racing, you know, Robin is racing, that's kind of suicide. And it's kind of what NASCAR realized last year. They said the game was up and they started trialing a lower downforce package, which cut some of that downforce away. And so far, King seems to be working. The driver's already clamoring for more to be taken off. Where do you think, do you think this package needs developing more or would you give it a good year or two to play out? Uh... I'd say you could tinker with it a bit more, but one thing I would absolutely love to see is there be another manufacturer to join the series. I know Dodge oh. is not coming back, but the maybe, a, yeah, maybe a foreign manufacturer. I know there have been some murmurs that one of the German manufacturers might come that may be Volkswagen, but I think that's been calmed down over the past year for, you know, scandal-related reasons. I was going to say, they are dead on their feet <laughs> yeah. in the U.S. right now. Yeah. So, so, go on. 
so yeah, a lot of positive things to take from that Daytona 500 from what I've been told and what I've been listen- listening while I've had this cup of tea in the background and uh, filed <laughs> my taxes. Um, so despite all that, let's be honest, it's not been a good week for NASCAR otherwise, unfortunately. No, given that, and um, this is disappointing. Well, again, I did say earlier, I don't really like talking politics on this show, but then again, I'm a Formula One fan. It goes hand in hand. I can't, I can't avoid it. It comes it's naturally. Like, it's, like a, it's like the Black Plague, so to speak. But uh, Brian, Brian France, the CEO of NASCAR, endorsed Donald Trump at a recent political gathering. And, Not just uh, endorsed Donald Trump, brought six <laughs> major NASCAR drivers, including one Hall of Famer, along with him which effectively mandates it as an official nascar event even though they quick they were quick to clarify within the hours after the event that no 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 this was brian france's personal choice this was not on behalf of nascar when he's mentioning nascar by name in the speech you know praising donald trump that's not the image that came across this was not a good move dre yeah yeah uh, okay let me just say Mm. even if it wasn't trump if this was bernie sanders hillary clinton whoever yeah. This would not have been a good move. Generally, you know, drivers are allowed to make personal choices on who they endorse. That's fine. But surely, if you're a major series, especially one who's looking out for a title sponsor after the end of this year, surely you don't lay your colours on the mask. And especially with someone who, let's be honest, is worse than Marmite. Yeah, like, like, yeah. like, like, like let's, you know, don't give me first. Yeah, like, Dre, I have to say, like, you, you're you an NFL fan. You know Roger yeah. Goodell, commissioner of, of the NFL. Mm-hmm. He, he's elected to his position. Everyone's kind of understanding that the commissioner will be someone else in, over the course of time. It is not the same in NASCAR. Uh, Brian France's grandfather founded NASCAR. It's pretty much certain that the head of NASCAR will be a member of the France family till... For eternity. Right. For that's, eternity. That's passed on like from generation to generation. Yeah. Like an old yeah. business. <laughs> yeah, wow. See, that I didn't know. But following on from what Adam said, like, Adam's hit the nail on the head to me when he said, like, it doesn't matter what the political representative is. The fact is Donald Trump makes it a much bigger deal because it's Donald Trump and he, he's becoming the, the the massive phenomenon over there in, in, in America when it comes to politics. But He redefines the word divisive. Of course, and and it's it's a situation where I would have said the same thing as if this was with any presidential candidate. Mm. There's not very many good things that can come from announcing which presidential nominee nominee you like the most. Like the only from what from what I've seen on the internet over the last couple of months, all it seems to do is is call for for, vit- for vitriolic discussions that don't really go anywhere. Mm. And like I said, like <clears throat> what, what what good thing could you get? from siding with a political nominee at this time of year. and even As a major know, motorsport organisation. And you know what makes it even worse? I think it's fair to say NASCAR kind of has an image problem in the first place. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of stereotypical jokes around NASCAR. You know, the fact that you know, it, it's a deeply southern industry. A lot of the drivers are from the south. The teams are from the south of America. And, they, you know, you could easily go into redneck discussions and yeah. stereotypes from, yeah. from that. And from what's that. weird is that NASCAR have worked really hard the last few years to try and disprove that image. Last exactly. year, they launched a campaign to try and ban the, or not ban, but try and discourage fans bringing the Confederate flag to races. They actually 
uh, on the recommendation of the Camping World CEO. Now, Camping World obviously sponsor the truck series, the third tier. On the recommendation of him saying he was uncomfortable with it, they pulled several awards banquets from Donald Trump-owned properties. They took a stance against him. Six months later, this happens, and I, to be honest, I did like the Camping World CEO's responses. He was very clear. He said, this doesn't screw up our relationship, Brian, but eh, not a good move. We ain't happy. So yeah. it, it just, I don't know. I think, to be honest with you, I think Brian France should have gone on his own and made it very clear this was a personal choice. The, he muddied the waters badly on this, and it, it yes. just didn't reflect well on NASCAR. Yeah. Exactly. I mean... Go, go on, King, go on. Yeah, like, this was heading into, you know, America's big primaries where I think a quarter of the states have primaries, and seven of those states were southern states, and Donald Trump ended up winning five of them the next day. Yeah. And the funny thing is, he actually said in that speech, after Brian France had said those comments, he said, if everyone watches NASCAR, goes over there and votes for me, we don't even need to bother with an election. I'd win. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things. And like I said... The political nominee in question is kind of irrelevant, despite the fact that there is obvious ties there with the Republican Party, the Deep South that always tends to vote Republican anyway. Mm. But even so, like I said, there's very little good that can come from mentioning a presidential nominee. Like, Effectively, like, like, I like, compared like, this... Like, what's the pros here? <laughs> no, exactly. I compared this to, for example, Alan Gow, the CEO of the British Touring Car Championship, turning up at a UKIP rally and endorsing Nigel Farage. Not a good look. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, even any political candidate being endorsed, it, it puts you in a position where you divide your own fan base, you divide your sponsors, you divide the people in it. But especially when it's someone like Donald Trump. Seriously. Yeah. And, I mean, just just to get into the opposition, the, the CEO of Camping World, Marcus Limonis, he's, he's also the host of a reality TV show here in the U.S. called The Prophet, where he helps, you know... <laughs> small businesses so it's not like he is not famous either no, of course. and he's i he's been politically active in the past but not very when he graduated from college he he tried to run for florida state government as a democrat and lost and decided oh i'm gonna go into the automotive industry <laughs> so, and so you know his his history is probably what nascar looks in for what they kind of look for in probably a casual fan he's someone who immigrated to the u.s as an infant because he's from lebanon and he was born in the middle of their civil war he was adopted by a couple in miami and he you know grew up to be a billionaire and one of the stances he has is why he's so you know against nascar making any political statement whatsoever he wants nascar to become a truly national sport and appeal to as many people as possible. It doesn't help if you try to support one side or the other, because then you just end up alienating the other side of the argument. Exactly. Exactly. Spot on. Yeah. So again, Brian France, not a good look for a series that's already had an image problem over the years. Yeah. I, I, I can't agree with that notion at all. Next. <laughs> Welcome to the F1 decision-making process, in a nutshell. As, <laughs> We've already had a hint of it. Yeah, as uh, Formula 1's qualifying system has been, as I, I've written my notes here, changed, delayed, then changed again, then underlaid. So, um, has it actually been changed at all? Is it still delayed? Kind of? Allow me to explain. Please do, my head hurts. The whole change happened this time last Wednesday. 
Um, last Wednesday, they announced a great big qualifying change. It was a change to an eliminator-style format. Like, if you've played a racing game over these, you know how the eliminator format tends to work. It was something like that. Burnout 3, I think. Yeah, something like that. You know, it was going to be an 18-minute first qualifying session. After seven minutes, um, there'd be eliminations every 90 seconds, and the bottom-ranked car would be out of qualifying so on and so forth until I think it was something like seven drivers drop out. They do the same thing again in Q2 and Q3. And a one-on-one shootout for the last for the last 90 seconds of Q3, which is, you know, what everybody wants to see. Um, so they announced this change. Now, at the time, I called it completely unnecessary because I was like, okay, why are you changing the qualifying format? Uh, I didn't see the point in that. Yeah. King took me out of context because he's, cause he's, cause he's trolling me like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's terrible. But um, <laughs> then it was announced like the next day on the first day that it was delayed until most likely Catalonia, the fifth round on the calendar. Reason being is that the FOM could not come up with, a, with the software changes in time. Again, not a good look. Um, so apparently the, the struggle to code this new system would mean they would not be able to implement it by the time we got to Australia. Great. So that was then put on ice for a little bit. Then it got changed again. And now it's looking like it's back on the table for us for, for Melbourne in two weeks' time where the situation looks like they're now going to do a hybrid of the two previous systems that we've had in Formula 1, where the Eliminator-style format will stay for Q1 and Q2, something like 16 minutes and I think 15 minutes with eliminations after I think 7 minutes or so, and the top 8 after Q1 and 2 will go through into Q3, which is now an 8-person shootout instead of a... um, 10-person shootout, should, should, should I say. And uh, that's going to be a conventional 12-minute Q3. Everybody got that? Uh, yeah, hang on, can you run was... past the last... I didn't get those notes down in time. I feel like uh, I'm at the back of a lecture on quantum physics. Fuck! Um, <laughs> like, I don't get what people are saying. It's not that complicated. Like, it really uh, we are is... hyping it up, let's be honest. Like, a bunch of F1 players are, are racing game fans. How on earth do they not understand how an eliminator qualifying format works? Is that really that complicated? <laughs> it's um, it's 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 not a good look, and for, from the fans, like this is this really isn't isn't that complicated. But to me, I, I have no problem with the system itself, believe it or not. Like, I had to, to, to mention this off the king took me out of context last week. <laughs> I had to say, look, I have no problem with the system itself, really. Like it's not a massive problem. No, it's, it's not a bad system. It's, it's not terrible. I, I get why it's been done. They're trying to, to jazz up qualifying, and they're trying to basically, I think, the logic I have of this new system is I think they're trying to catch people out more than anything else. Like, like for example, last year in Austria Q1, where Kimi Raikkonen got eliminated in Q1 because he was caught out by the changing conditions of a, of a drying track. I think they're trying to catch people out more often with this, as opposed to, you know, tactical changes, as, as opposed to... Um, the system before where it was more you might get caught out of the end if, if track conditions change if it was wet or whatever i think that's the angle they're trying to go with with this but i got a feeling that teams will just adapt and it won't be a big deal like like the teams are really adamant this will shake up races king i'm not convinced uh i i think the teams are right here that it will shake up things but not in the way you think it would oh. like it will shake things up but it will shake things up more for the smaller teams and i think it goes back to our old igp manager game days where ah. the old the old idiom where like 
yeah, it's great to have a good strategy, but when you have a fast car, any strategy is a good strategy. That's a good point. That's a very good point now I think about it. God damn you and your IGP references. That's very 2012. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's, a, that's a fair point. I, th- I, I, I still stand by what I said. I think it's more to try and catch out teams out, but I think there's definitely more flexibility for it in the midfield to lower teams. Because I think the midfield in general is going to be closer this year with the more questionable elements of going on, like, like is the Renault unit going to catch up? How's Red Bull going to float in with the Tag Heuer? Power unit they're, they're making themselves. Where's Haas going to fit in? Where's Renault going to fit in? Etc. So I think there's definitely more of a case for a jumble in Q2, maybe. Mm. Um, Q3, be, maybe, maybe that's why they've gone through this hybrid change in them, because they think maybe Q3 is going to be more conventional anyway, so, so why bother messing with it? Maybe that's the idea because I still don't see anything to suggest the top three or four teams are going to change around frequently. But reading how this came to be, it seems like the teams were pressured into this, because it seems like Bernie acts for this, while also he had basically Bernie acts to do this because the circuit promoters wanted him to do this. Right. The circuit promoters are looking not only to make the races on Sunday more exciting, but to get more people out on Saturdays, which has always been kind of qualifying's thing. It's it's the reason why qualifying exists, so circuit promoters could sell more tickets. Like qual- Qualifying does not need to exist. We could literally go back to the old days where they just picked numbers out of a hat and it would be <laughs> just as good. Yeah, that's true. That's never worked anywhere else, has it, has it Johnson? No, it's... <clears throat> I, I don't know. This is... Uh, sorry, I've just been a little bit distracted by... Um, it appears Twitter seems to be catching up to our conversation and just heard that we've been talking about Halo cockpits because some quotes from the drivers have turned up and we're not just talking Nico Hulkenberg this time. Oh, uh, we have... You've got some breaking news here, folks. We have, yes. We have Lewis Hamilton's initial reaction to it being, I saw a picture of it, and apparently he put a he put the palm of his hand to his face and said, that's my opinion. When asked to put oh his gesture in words, he said, no, I won't give you a soundbite. Obviously, Hulkenberg describes it as horrible. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Daniel Kvyat echoed Hulkenberg's thoughts. There are many controversial opinions and so on. Formula One is an open cockpit racing. It is more dangerous like this, but Formula One is dangerous. Uh, da, da, da. He says open cockpit a lot. Um, Felipe Massa admitted the design did not look good, but insisted he's in favour of introducing closed cockpits. So, yeah, echoing what we said earlier, drivers are not unanimous on this one at all. And you know what we said earlier about Lewis Hamilton getting involved? He ain't a fan. Yeah, major names are starting to come out against this, and I think we can only conclude what we did earlier. This solution is not anywhere near soon, a unanimous one anyway. Yeah, and again, look, Kimi Raikkonen said he was all for it. It's a surprisingly little difference in visibility either. So there's so many different angles on that. And hey, as more comes out, I'm sure we'll talk about it maybe on next week's episode as well. But um, yeah, yeah, moving, mean, moving, yeah, go on, King, go on. Yeah, going, going back to qualifying and talking about the split camps, a number of the drivers met with Charlie Whiting to hopefully give their advice and give their opinions on the whole new qualifying format. And... It, it it was noted because journalists wrote down a list of everyone who showed up. 13 out of the 20 drivers turned up. Right. So the list is uh, Nico Rosberg, Sebastian Vettel, Kimi Raikkonen, Felipe Massa, Max Verstappen, uh, Carlos Sainz Jr., 
Jensen Button, Kevin Magnuson, Jolin Palmer, Roman Grosjean, and Esteban Gutierrez were the 13 drivers who showed up right. to the FIA motorhome to complain about the new system. So 13 of the 20 complained about it. Yeah. Wow. Ouch. That's two-thirds of the grid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I Look, like I said, I don't have an issue with the system itself. The issue I have is the logic behind changing it. And I, I did not know the story behind that until you just said it on the podcast. I, did, I didn't know this was, this was more of a track promoter move. But then again, that makes perfect sense now I think about it because track promoters are trying to sell more tickets and they're trying to mess with race formats. On a, on a side note real quick, World Superbikes have been doing that this year where they've now put their – they have two races a weekend. They've now put race one on the Saturday. I think as a, as a move to try and sell more weekend tickets as opposed to purely mm. Sunday tickets, because obviously last year both races were on the same day. Why would you need to buy a weekend ticket? Yeah. So I think they've, they've, they've done that to try and get more ticket sales for a weekend and get more value out of it. It seems like the track promoters have done a similar move here to try and jazz up qualifying, to, to try and basically try and sell more weekend tickets. Is that fair to say, King? Yeah, that's completely fair to say. Yeah, I, I, I just... Ugh. But, I mean, I love Bernie Eccleston's quote about this. It's complete gold. As go, usual, go, Bernie. Go, go on, Bernie. Yeah. It's like, all I'm trying to do is muddle up the grid so that the guy that's quickest in qualifying doesn't sit on pole and disappear. Because why should he be slow in the... Why should, why should he be slow in the race if he's quick in qualifying? I... I want to do a simple thing. I wanted to, I wanted qualifying to stay as it is because it's good. And then if a guy gets on pole and has won the last race, he gets so many seconds added to his time. So he has to fight through the pack to get to the lead and the race would be exciting while keeping things, you know, as it is. So effectively what he's trying to do is introduce a really convoluted version of the British Touring Car Championship ballast system. The success ballast yeah, system. Yeah, pretty much. Time, time, yeah, time and success ballast. And, you know... I, from my, from the I grew up as a as a MotoGP fan first in the late '90s when it was like Kenny Roberts and Carlos Checker and dudes like that. They actually did have an aggregate timing system whenever the race had to be stopped and restarted. It got scrapped, I think, in the early 2000s. But there was a aggregate timing system. So what happened was if there was a red flag, they would they would go back a lap, take the timings from there, and then rerun the race as normal. Hmm. But it was always confusing because you would see all these different timing screens like yeah. show different times afterwards. And that's why it got scrapped. That's the problem of what we think what Bernie's trying to say is that a system yeah. like that would be really, really confusing to the casual viewer. Um, yeah, but I mean... Like if I continue on, he gets frustrated because he he's clearly frustrated with the teams at this point. He literally says that the teams the teams don't want to do reverse grids because he's tried to do that, and he says there's a million things that they could do, but they're completely mad. And they and he basically says he can't do it alone because you know the strategy group. Of course, he can, he can only he can only as 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 we've mentioned before in this podcast, people love to paint Bernie as the Darth Vader of Formula One, when in actuality it's more the strategy group and the teams. Like Bernie can only say and do so much. He has he has pull, but he doesn't have pull pull. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's 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 a bit of a confusing one, really. Like like I said, I don't have a major problem with this, and I don't find the new system confusing at all. It's just the logic behind it is frustrating because it just seems like 
it's different entities trying to fight each other to get their slice of the pie. I mentioned this on last week's Dre Brief on the YouTube channel, and yeah, it, it, it's it, like there's not very much. Again, there's not much positive to draw from this because. At absolute best, you're going to jumble the midfield more than likely because I think the top seven or eight will be consistent anyway. Like we're not in a fortunate situation like maybe the first half of 2013 where there was three or four teams in the mix. That's not quite the case here. And yeah, like it, my problem isn't with the format; it's just the sport itself. It's just it's just not a good fit for something like this at the moment. Yeah. So, well, this is why um, on the last episode I. Or- uh, whenever it was, I pitched the idea of balance and performance in Formula One. And the reason why I say that is this. I don't feel like, I feel like, first off, I feel like success balance is something that works more in sprint-based racing and it, it works perfectly for the British Touring Car Championship. Yes. However, Super GT does have a system like that and it, it kind of buys into the fact that, hey, you can do basically what you want with the cars and spend as much manufacturing money as long as you understand we're going to balance you if you dominate races. And Overall, it works pretty well. They accept it, though, and it's all, as far as I know, it's been a part of Super GT racing in Japan for a very long time. The reason why I say about balanced performance is that it seems to be a thing that even in top-level elite series that <clears throat> excuse me, emphasize purism in inverted commas, it seems to be generally accepted, and it seems to be a nice compromise. Mm-hmm. It seems to work quite well in the um, FIWEC, and especially over in the IMSA um, WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. So... Is I feel like it's never going to get past... I mean, here's the funny bit. You remember last year when Gene Haas made those comments saying NASCAR was a dictatorship? Everyone <laughs> yeah. said he was, thought he was hating on NASCAR. Truth is, he was complimenting them because effectively what he was saying was, you know what, at least NASCAR gets shit done because it's one guy who has all the power to make the decisions. Generally, he listens to the drivers and the teams before making a decision, but he has the power to do that. In F1, I believe he used the phrase anarchy in, in that very same interview because he said, you know, you've got so many people with voice and influence. And as we keep saying, if you're a team owner, if you're a Toto Wolf, Mercedes is spending so much money to dominate F1 right now and getting a lot out of it. If Bernie or someone pitched an idea that says, hey, basically this idea is to stop you dominating and make the race more interesting by having more people potentially beat you. Why is Toto Wolf ever going to say yes to that? What? Why? Exactly. So, so there's your issue. Ugh. There it is. Yeah. There's, like as Bernie said, F1 is too democratic. End the discussion. <laughs> Next, uh, <laughs> let's 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 bring out the positive news here. As the, this, it seems that Manor are having their own family reunion right now, as they've Isn't announced. That nice? They, they, they bring him back all the likable people from the old manor camp as their WEC team starts to take some shape. They've announced their drivers for their lead car as it's going to be Will Stevens, the obviously manor driver for, for all of last season, and James Jakes making the move from Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports IndyCar team of 2015. Now... King, I think Jakes is a former manor guy himself as well, so it's it, I guess it's kind of a familiar move and uh, an all British team as well, which I guess is also good for the old marketing, yeah. right? <laughs> an all British team, even if um, you know, let's be real here, Jakes wasn't that great in IndyCar and didn't really make a big name for himself over there. And Will Stevens is probably now more looked at as a more mocking figure because of his accent on team radio than his actual ability in the car. But even so, Stevens is a solid driver, so hey, I think it's a pretty cool looking team. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a solid team. I don't, I don't follow LMP2 that much, so I can't see how well they'll fare. But 
I mean, the experience will definitely help. I think the key yeah. thing here is that in LMP2, um, the fact is they've got a very competitive Orica 05 car. So a lot of the problems they had at Manor was obviously they were effectively trying to keep a 2014 design going just long enough for them to finish the season effectively. So they were yeah. always kind of limping through every weekend. They've been able to buy a very competitive LMP2 car. And as I said before, this class is quite performance balanced. So there's every chance. They've also got Tor Graves in there, who's a very experienced uh, sports car driver. Uh, I believe a former LMP2 champion. Uh, I might have to check on that stat, but not a bad little lineup coming together. And, it, and it's quite interesting to see the two manners paths diverge. You've got the Formula One team that has almost had to evolve to survive, you know, taking on the Mercedes engine deal and, you know, new drivers are coming in and new impetus and new money. And the team, that, the guys who got the manner team surviving in the first place have moved on somewhere where they can run things how they want to and still be successful, i.e. over in LMP2. So I think this could work out rather nicely for all concerned, even though it is a bit confusing that Manor have signed Will Stevens, even though they just fired Will Stevens. But you've got to remember that it's actually two separate Manors and something else. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah. I'm, I'm not fucking going into this discussion of how the Manors are split up again. I did that last episode and I nearly died. <laughs> Stop that. Go I'm, listen I'm, to that one. I'm not going that that road again. Go go listen to last week's episode before you before you go into that. Cause I I can't be asked to explain that again. But yeah, there is essentially two manners for all intents and purposes, and one of them is privately owned. The other one is 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 Booth and Loud and the guys you know and love, and the the likable guys are in the WEC. So now every WEC hardcore listening to this is now going to be furiously masturbating to themselves while listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, yay. Um, couple of couple more uh, minor stories to talk about as well. This totally isn't going on YouTube. Um, we'll be talking about Lewis Hamilton. Surprise! The most overtalked about story in Formula One. Uh, Lewis Hamilton basically went out on the record and said he effectively tanked the uh, last three rounds of the championship after he won the title in America. Um, it's an interesting discussion because I think it's one that went quite under the radar and I think it, it goes more down to the world of sport itself where we in sport love seeing athletes give it 110%. We all, we've all seen every motivational sporting quote in the book. We've all watched the Rocky movies for fuck's sake. We, I mean, <laughs> we, 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 know, we know how this is. Um, so Hamilton admitting he tanked the last two rounds is probably not a good look on paper. I know it's not really that big a deal but I couldn't help but bring this up because it's one of those things where I think to do with the culture of Sport King, it's something that you would raise an eyebrow at. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, definitely. Especially when we have, you know, the fans, you know, being completely opposed to having the last race worth double points because all the race should be all the races should be equal. A fourth yet we have... should not be worth a race win, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> Yet we have Lewis Hamilton clearly not thinking the same and that all the races aren't equal to him. Well, that's the thing. Um, he had every reason not to, not to really give a shit about the last two races because he won the championship. The problem is he's still, he's still employed by his team. Yeah. And... Yeah, the team had, you know, the, obviously the team had nothing to play for at that point in time. They'd already won the Constructors two rounds prior, I think, in Mexico. They won the Constructors title for the for the second consecutive year. But 
I, it reminds me a lot of a situation where, as an NBA fan, I'll bring this up. Vince <laughs> Carter, who was one of the best players in the NBA, one of the most explosive and dynamic players to ever play the game. I've just played on every black stereotypical description word ever there. Explosive and powerful. Uh, <laughs> that's that's when you know people don't know what to say to describe somebody. They use the, they use the term explosive. Um, but yeah, Carter was one of the best players in the NBA. Amazing athlete, incredible dunker, and incredible player in general. Future Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. He admitted in an interview later in his career that he did not give it 100% when he played at Toronto. And he was absolutely vilified for it. Mm. Um, he was often called Wince Carter after that because of you know, his lack of effort or you know, his, his, his often his, his reaction to injuries and whatnot. He became quite a villain figure for basketball, which I think often basketball so often needs, given how well Golden State's been at the moment. But it all needs heel figures. We all, like, sport needs heel figures, and Vince Carter became an easy hate figure after that. It, like, is there more to it than that, Johnson? I don't think there really is. I, 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 thought, I thought this was more of a funny story than anything else, but... <laughs> to me, I'll yeah. be honest with you, this stinks of Lewis Hamilton going, oh, well, I didn't really care about the last few rounds. I'd won it already. It was fine. Would he have said the same had he won all three? I'm not sure. Because to be honest, at the time, given how he was getting upset on the radio, he was demanding different pit strategies, it felt to me like he was pretty hungry to win. And, you know, race drivers in particular, most sports people are incredibly proud animals. And yes, uh, it also echoes a little bit, you know, you mentioned about how he's employed by Mercedes to win races, obviously. It echoes back a little bit to the MotoGP finale from last year. And the hilarious, actually, they weren't. They were about as funny as Ebola. Tweets saying about, oh, well, of course, Mark Marquez didn't die bomb Jorge Lorenzo because they're Spanish. And of course, Mark, well, that conspiracy. And I remember thinking, Marquez is employed by Honda. Jorge Lorenzo is hired by Yamaha. If you're Honda, you are hired and paid to beat Yamaha and everyone else. End and, of discussion. And, and basically, if Marquez had basically gone out and admitted he tanked a race to help Lorenzo win, he'd be fired. There's oh, no yeah, exactly. Because they can't trust him anymore. Exactly. It's, it's a huge breach of trust. Now, obviously not the same situation here, and obviously the uh, the, the, the things are different. Like, is there a bit of gamesmanship to that as well? Because we all know what Hamilton's like. Hamilton's always taken pot shots at Rosberg mm. over, over a time together. Even after he won his second title in 2014, he still went out and said he reckoned Rosberg did it to him on purpose at Belgium. Yeah. And th there's absolutely nothing that you could say that can that could justifiably prove that Rosberg did anything on purpose to mess up Hamilton on the day. But he said it anyway because, fuck it, that's just what he yep. does. Um but he, like we all know Rosberg went on a tear at the end of the season. I mean, I've said it before. If it wasn't for the throttle breakup, given how F1 is in Russia, there's a very real chance that Rosberg would have won the last five rounds if it wasn't for that and the and the gust of wind at Kota. I don't know how much you want to read into that one. <laughs> um, but he would have won four out of the last five more unlikely if it wasn't for the reliability issues that was going on there. So even so, like... I don't know if that's just a bit of Lewis Hamilton gamesmanship right there, mm. but I certainly think it's an interesting one, Dad. I think it's a story that I think went quite under the radar 
during testing, which is funny because testing is normally the kind of thing that people do talk a lot about Formula One, even if there's not much to actually talk about. So I think this I, year I, they've been focusing so desperately on have Ferrari improved and can they please beat Mercedes this year? Please, pretty do, please. Do more laps. Like, what, what's the lap count like? How many laps has McLaren done? <laughs> more than last year? Well, they did about two last year, so that's an improvement. Hey, every little helps. So yeah. I, thought, I thought that was an interesting little thing to talk about as well. Final story for this episode, and one's a little bit more serious in this one, it was Carlos Sainz Jr. coming out and admitting that he had to be on a very extreme diet to be able to fit in an F1 car so the car can make the weight limit. And now, this is a story I think I may or may not have brought up on the podcast in its earlier days, but I, it reminds me a lot of Adrian Sutil that said, I believe he said something very similar during the 2014 season when he was at Sauber, because Sutil's a big guy. I think he's a significant six foot one. He's a very tall driver, so still a bit of quite well built. So he basically had to talk about how he nearly passed out um, during the course of a weekend, and how he's having to basically starve himself to fit in a Formula One car. And it's a bit alarming, King, that drivers like they're not they're not the biggest athletes in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but even they are having these issues with things like water retention and and body weight and whatnot going into Formula One. It, like it, it screams to me like it's a health problem. <laughs> is King busy starving himself to yeah, fit on this I podcast? Mean... Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, just thinking back to those days, it was. It was definitely a topic because people were obviously worried about driver safety. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the teams operating within this, you know, very precise margin of error of wanting their car to be as light as possible for maximum performance while, you know, still, you know, as some engineers would say, having to deal with the annoying bit being the driver. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know, I think the biggest. Um, avid talker about the situation was Mark Webber. Webber, who obviously was enormous for an F1 driver, he's six foot three. Um, like Webber was always was always kind of a freak case, and it may, it may many argue it may have held him back in his career because he was because of how big he was. And he basically said how he had to starve himself to get in the car half the time. He like he, he could eat next to nothing. He couldn't he couldn't really live in a particularly healthy manner because of the because because of his size. And the team having to cater around that size of his when he was in the car driving, and that was always an issue. Um, it's interesting because it reminds me a lot of mixed martial arts and collegiate wrestling. And in collegiate wrestling, you often try to lose as much water weight as possible so you can try and wrestle in as small a weight class as possible so you have the natural size advantage. It's, it, it, that's how it always tends to be. Now, often that's. I know collegiate wrestling has gone out of its way to try and reduce that effect by um, having same-day weigh-ins. Um, so you, you know it's harder to recover that kind of weight in time. But that happens a lot in mixed martial arts as well. That's that's the biggest instance where this is this is a thing, where fighters will often try and lose maybe 15, 20, maybe 30 pounds of water weight uh, and and other bodily fluids to try and get down to fight in as small a weight class as possible, and then obviously beef their body back up again in that day of recovery between the weigh-in and the day of the fight. So, naturally, it's dangerous. I remember Anthony Rumble Johnson was a was a guy that walked around at 225 pounds, but he was fighting at 170. Um, so he was losing, oh like... God. So he Whoa. was 
he was losing like three stone in in the space like 50 pounds in in, in the space of maybe a six to eight week training camp man to, well to, i mean that's a little bit similar fight, to the yeah to try and fight a welterweight it was ridiculous he yeah, can't exactly. just can't do things like that like it's, it's not healthy and like losing 10 percent of your body weight that quickly is just not healthy at no. all and like there was a couple of stories last year where fighters had died trying to cut weight for fights. It's well, I mean, there was a similar thing. scenario recently with uh, that Bellator fight, the Kimbo yeah. Slice and Dada 5000. 5000, his heart stopped beating after the match, uh, yeah. after the fight, and it they revealed that he'd cut 40 pounds in the <laughs> week or fortnight before the fight. Exactly. So, you know, for two older guys especially, it was ridiculous. Exactly. So, I mean, that's one thing. Not quite the same thing, but even so, absolutely. I mean, weight cutting has been an issue in the UFC for quite some time. And, you know, the UFC has been kind of ignorant to the whole idea and possibility of change. They've not really addressed this. But many, many MMA journalists have gone out and said, look, the weight cutting thing is dangerous and it needs to stop. So they've often had ideas like maybe do same-day weigh-in so that you couldn't just cheat to you know get down as low as a weight class as you can and then and then beef yourself back up again on the day they've often considered things like randomly testing people at their gyms during training camps and getting a walking weight so a weight that a fighter will normally walk around give you an example real quick donald cerrone fights at lightweight 155 he was often walking around maybe 175 180 pounds so you can see what you got to do you got to lose such a ridiculous amount of weight in such a in such a short amount of time it's it's a very dangerous thing to do and you know f1 these drivers are cutting weight because of performance ballast. They can get, they can put more weight on the car that way to fit them to fit the minimum requirement, and that way they can they can manipulate that weight and make it and make the car potentially faster in certain areas. That's why they're doing it. And yeah, maybe something needs to be done about that because if drivers have to starve themselves to fit in a car, that's probably not a good look. That's 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 the the impression I get, King, at least. Yeah, it's it's never a good look when. You know, athletes have to put their own health at risk just to, you know, <laughs> compete. And it, it, it it's not a good look at all. And when, when drivers have to prepare themselves, they shouldn't have to be worrying whether they have enough energy to actually get in the car. Yeah, and we all know, imagine if a, if a driver passes out of the wheel, what the hell are people going to say then? I mean, oof, my God. Mm. Yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd be like a volcano erupting. But, um... Yeah, that just about does it for this edition of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Just a quick reminder in case you missed the start of the, uh, start of the show. We're back next Friday. So that'll be Friday the 10th or 11th of March, I should say, actually. So we're going weekly from here on in. And next week will be a great big IndyCar season preview. And I can't wait to talk about that because there's so yes. many good things. I like know. If you, if you want some more positivity out of your Motorsport 101, good news. <laughs> IndyCar is coming back. Yes, IndyCar is back next weekend at St. Petersburg, and we'll be talking all about that, previewing the grid, talking all good things IndyCar, and it'll be a jolly old time. Oh, yeah. Um, so that'll be great. Of course, you can follow all of us on Twitter. I'm at Harrison101HD. Adam is at AJ underscore Bombersports, and King is at Ryan Eric King. That's with two Ks. Um, and, of course, you can, catch, you can catch us on SoundCloud at Motorsport101. We follow everybody back because we're nice like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're over there on um, SoundCloud as well as, obviously, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And, of course, if you really, really like us, you can subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Motorsport101 for exclusive content like the Dre Brief series, which I spearhead. 
And if you really, really, really like us, you can check us out on Patreon and back us as a, as, as a show. We, we got we got the postcards today, so you can finally send all those postcards out to our Patreon backers. And for the motorsport long distance girlfriend, you could only wish to have. <laughs> Damn it, Drake! <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I'm not alienating my audience at all. I promise. We all have girlfriends, right? Right. Um. No. Recently. Uh, uh, <laughs> damn it. Michaela Schiffen isn't taking my calls. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, from me, Andre Harrison. What the Adam hell is Johnson. call ID? <laughs> from me, Adam Johnson, and Ryan King, I've been Andre Harrison. Thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Sayonara.